Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. I'm Sarah Farooq. In today's episode, we will be discussing issues at the intersection of technology and the environment and the laws governing this space. Specifically, you will hear about the impact data centers have on small towns they inhabit. When talking about data centers, one might not think there are big environmental impacts beyond energy use. But as you will hear more about in a moment, the cooling technology used in data centers is extremely water intensive. Data centers house the massive servers which store the digital data we create online. They're a critical part of the digital business, and as the digital business expands, so do the data centers. This expansion translates into an increase in water consumption by the centers, which can be a serious draw on an area's water supply. Today, we will be focusing on one of the tech industry's favorite places to locate data centers, Oregon. We will be hearing from two very distinguished guests who have been studying this issue. They will help us understand the tech industry's dependence and impacts on Oregon's groundwater and rivers. We will also discuss how tax regimes and water laws in Oregon have developed over time, making it a hub for data centers. Junior podcast editor Meg O'Neill will be first talking to John DeVoe. Currently, John is a senior fundraiser and advisor for WaterWatch, an environmental organization that has been protecting and restoring bodies of water in Oregon for the last 38 years. John has a law degree from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and a BA in philosophy from Columbia College in New York. He has served on the steering committees of various water conservation associations. John's work centers on preserving Oregon's water and connected ecosystems, and part of this work has involved assessing the impact that data centers have on local water sources. Our second guest is Mike Rogaway. Mike is a journalist with The Oregonian. He has an MBA from the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. Mike's work focuses on technology and its impact on communities. He was a 2008 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting. In 2023, he received the National Headliner Award for The Data Center Next Door, a piece of investigative reporting on Google's data centers in Oregon. Meg spoke to Mike and John about the background of water rights in Oregon, how Oregon became a popular destination for big tech, and the recent lawsuit involving Google and the city of the Dales. You'll hear them talk about the economic benefits that accompany big tech's presence, the fight over data transparency as it relates to environmental impacts, and some avenues for a more sustainable method of conducting business. We're delighted to have had Mike and John here with us, and we hope you enjoy this episode of the BTLJ podcast. Hi, listeners. I'm here with John Defoe of Waterwatch in Oregon. Hi, John. Hi, Meg. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me and Waterwatch on this podcast. My pleasure. Would you actually start us off with an overview of what Waterwatch does? Sure. Uh, Waterwatch's mission is to protect and restore stream flows in Oregon's rivers for fish, wildlife, and people who depend on healthy rivers. As kind of a corollary to that mission, 
We also remove, obviously, dams. We promote free-flowing rivers. We've been behind a number of very high-profile dam removals in Oregon uh, and also involved in the Klamath Dam removals that are happening now. And we also secure the balanced and climate-resilient water policies and investments that Oregon needs in a climate change world. That's, that's basically our mission. Perfect. Okay, so my first question really is just, what are water rights and what does the regulatory landscape around water rights look like? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, in the West, water is treated differently than it is in the Eastern United States. Out West, we have basically what's called prior appropriation, which is a first in right, first in time, first in right system. Water rights are basically the entitlements that a Western state, the state of Oregon or another Western state would give you if you came in and filed for a, a permit to use water. We start from the proposition that, and the Oregon statutes do as well, that all water from all sources of supply belongs to the public. What people acquire when they get a water right is a right to use the water. It's called a usufructuary right, a fancy word for saying you get a, a right to use the water, but it comes with some conditions. It is a form of property interest, but it's not all the sticks in the bundle is the way we, we talk about it. Wow, that sounds really complex. Um, are there current weaknesses or loopholes, I guess, in the rules? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How much time do we have? I mean, I, I wouldn't describe them as weaknesses, but I think what your listeners need to understand is that water law in the West came out of the, the 49er mining camps in, North, in California during the gold rush. Robert Glennon is a, a famous water author. Uh, he's described it as the law of thieves. And that's how you get this first in time, first in right system. And so these laws were basically created to encourage white folks to settle the West and engage in farming, mining, and other sorts of extractive activities. So it's in some ways a very unfair law, an unjust law, and it, it doesn't fit in a lot of ways with current needs, current societal needs. It certainly doesn't fit with environmental needs. You know, when, when we're in the midst here of a mega drought that may be the most serious drought that we've had in the West in 1,200 years, there are questions whether this system this prior appropriation system is really the best way to handle the situation. And so you can describe that as a loophole if you want, or you can describe it as an omission. But yes, and then there are politics, and the politics around water are very fierce. Sometimes the laws are, you know, in second place to the politics. There are some good laws on the book, but there's a lot of discretion at the state agencies that that manage and enforce these laws and manage the water out on the landscape. The bottom line is that the oldest water right holders tend to get their water with some regularity. The more junior water right holders may or may not get their water. And there isn't a lot of active management in light of conservation needs, in light of the needs of salmon, steelhead, aquatic species, the needs of rivers. All those considerations came very late in the system. That's a long-winded way of saying, yes, there are some loopholes, but there are also some structural deficiencies in the laws that exist. Okay, that makes sense. Just to clarify, when you buy land in the West, you're 
buying sort of the use of that water right that's attached to the land. But are there other ways to obtain water rights? Yeah, water water rights are what are called appurtenant to land. And so you can buy water. There there are there is a way, there's a mechanism in the law called a transfer where you can go into the state agency and and move water around, but you have to go through a process. And one piece of that process is to ensure that you do not injure other water rights in moving that water around. You know, water markets can do good things, but, you know, sometimes they don't do good things. I mean, you have people like T. Boone Pickens coming in and trying to corner the market on groundwater in aquifers in Texas, or the Saudis coming in and trying to do similar things with aquifers elsewhere. But water is typically associated with a place of use. And if the land sells, the water goes with it, typically. Okay, great. That makes sense. So I know that there are a ton of data centers on the West Coast, and especially in Oregon, and that often data centers use a large amount of water. What are some of the reasons that companies are choosing to build their data centers here? Yeah, I think I think there are several explanations for it, um, and there are probably several that I'm unaware of that deal with you know capital markets and considerations in the industry that I'm simply not aware of. But you know, my explanation in part would be that the Pacific Northwest has had cheap hydropower, cheap electricity for a long time, and you know, obviously data centers consume a lot of electricity. There are also considerations around tax subsidies and such. I mean, take Google in the Dalles, Oregon, which is a town about 80 miles east of Portland on the Columbia River. Google received on their first data center there $260 million plus or minus in tax subsidies uh, over 10 years from the local authorities with approval from the the state to, to locate there. And so you know, I think you get into these situations where places are competing for what they perceive as, uh, you know, big employers, big, big injections of capital and, and economic activity into their communities, and it becomes kind of a race to see who can land these facilities. I would also suggest that for the facilities that are using water as a cooling mechanism in their facilities, there are perceptions that the regulatory oversight is not very onerous for industry in terms of getting water. And so there can be runs on attempts to uh, obtain those entitlements. And we've, we've seen it in, say, the alfalfa business, where a lot of interests will hear that Oregon's groundwater is open for alfalfa production. Let's all move there and, and grow alfalfa. And you can go down around the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, and you will see a lot of center pivot alfalfa production using fossil groundwater. And this is because the state was not doing its job in terms of ensuring that it only issued permits for, for sustainable use of groundwater. I would suggest that, that some of these centers locate here because the perception is that there's a lot of water available for their use if they choose to use that technology to cool their servers. Not all of them that have located here have done that, but some of them have, and they've been able to, I mean, Google has been able to obtain the water it, it thinks it's going to need for expansion and its existing operation in the Dalles. Okay, so... 
big water consumers are moving in. Can you talk about how that impacts the ecology of the local area? And I guess also, what are companies and and regulators doing and what should they be doing to mitigate those impacts? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of impacts of some of these operations locating where they are and choosing this technology. I mean, what you have to understand is that almost every basin in Oregon is over-allocated in the dry months of the year. And that's largely true of basins across the West. And what that means is the water regulators have given away more permits for water than actually exists in many of the streams across the Western landscape. So you can have a paper water right, but you may not get any actual wet water. Now the Google is located in the Dalles, Oregon, and they're getting their water from the city of the Dalles. Part of the city's water portfolio is groundwater, and yet the region around the Dalles, because of overpumping historically, has been designated a critical groundwater area in the state of Oregon, and it was one of the first. And so what you have is water poor regions, and then you have new industries locating there, which add to the, the stress on those watersheds. Okay, let me make sure I have this right. The Dales uses groundwater, at least in part, and groundwater has already been overpumped even before the Google data centers moved in. And the data centers present a growing demand for water to cool their servers. What does the city do in this situation? The city, Google has paid the city of the Dales over $28 million to beef up its water supply. And one way the city of the Dalles has done this is it has gone to a very sensitive stream in another watershed. It's called the Dog River, and it's a tributary to the Hood River, which flows into the Columbia River. The Dog River supports multiple runs of Endangered Species Act listed salmon and steelhead. And the Dalles, through Google's largesse, has decided to double the amount of water it takes from the Dog River. If it does that, the Dog River is going to go dry up to eight months out of the year. And the salmon and steelhead that use that river are going to be in trouble. So they have encouraged the Dalles to to expand its water supply. And the Dalles has chosen to do that by going to a very sensitive source that supports imperiled salmon and steelhead. And in doing so, it's, it's putting those fish at risk. So that's just a small example. And I think, I think what that shows you is you have this global economic industry, you know, high-tech, data farms, server farms, whatever you want to call it, that's serving people all over the planet. And they're coming to a very localized watershed and saying, we want to locate here. There have been some studies done, um, and there's a, there's a, a letter out there from a couple of years ago which tried to quantify the effect of data farms on on waters, their water footprints and such. And the conclusion in part was that these server farms are having a disproportionate dependency on scarce waters in the Western US. It also concluded many of the watersheds in the Western US exhibit high levels of water stress, which is exacerbated by data centers. And they factored in not only direct water use and cooling, but also indirect water use in terms of generating the electricity that powers these server farms, which consume a lot of electricity. So if you look at the water footprint of these operations, it's, it's a big footprint. 
Um, there are, you know, they would say, well, we have to balance, you know, carbon emissions with water use with other considerations. That's true, but I think looking at water is not like looking at should we locate in the Columbia River Basin. I think you have to look a lot more local and say what are the impacts of putting this facility right here on the watersheds that it's actually going to get its source water from. And sometimes those impacts can be pretty high. Right, that makes sense. One one of the things I discovered while looking into this topic was that the amount of water that data centers actually use, while it's far from insignificant, it actually really pales in comparison to the amount of water something like agriculture uses. But when you look at it on a more local scale of where tech companies are choosing specifically to build, that is that is when you see much bigger negative impacts and those impacts spreading to neighboring communities. Would you say that's accurate? I, I think that's roughly accurate. I, I think it's analogous to the situation with climate change where you have a new impact landing on top of existing inequities and omissions, and the effect of that can be pretty severe. And if you have a new use coming into a basin that's already fully appropriated and too much water has been promised to too many interests, and now you have a new, very powerful tech interest like Google or Amazon or Apple or Facebook or whoever it is coming in and demanding more water, they're going to get theirs. And the losers are going to be fish, wildlife, the environment and sustainability in general. And it's it's not necessarily because their use is so gigantic. It's just that we've already baked in so much use that these watersheds really can't handle a lot of additional use. That that makes a ton of sense. So I, I guess then what sort of policies would WaterWatch recommend a tech company implement if they were looking to build a new data center, looking for water rights? Well, I'll, I'll say they're not giving us a call up front and asking for our opinion. <laughs> but I think there are things that these operations can do. I, I think they could commit to, you know, having a net zero impact on the watersheds where they get their source water. And the Googles of the world are wealthy enough to go out and retire some water rights in these watersheds equal to or you know maybe there should be a multiplier to the amount that they intend to use and they could easily do that now i do see i see talk about mitigation you know amazon claims in in the umatilla basin out there in the columbia that it's mitigating its use by putting water into irrigation district canals to me that's not really mitigating what that's doing is expanding agriculture it's not doing anything for the source waters from which Amazon extracts its water to use in its operation. And I think that's another thing that could be done is when we're talking about mitigation with respect to these operations, they ought to be focused on the source waters, where the water comes from that is used in the operations, and the, the fish and wildlife and ecological values that get impaired because of the additional use. That's what I would term is real mitigation and not some out-of-kind mitigation that really has nothing to do with the source waters. So, you know, I think a multiplier, a mitigation obligation, and then a multiplier on that would be great. 
I think they also ought to have more of a microscope when they talk about locating these facilities because, you know, if you look at the Columbia Basin, that's too large a focus in terms of what are the impacts going to be of locating a facility. You know, Columbia Basin, it could be all over the place, but I think you need to look at the watersheds that are involved in providing the source waters and those that are involved in generating the electricity that these facilities use. Those are a couple suggestions. Those are great. I am always so grateful when someone has a real answer to that question of what can we be doing differently. Um, I guess a follow-up to that, do you see companies actually making those changes and making those choices in the future? Um, I mean, I believe in the soft path for water. There's the Pacific Institute and Peter Glick have talked about that a lot. Basically, let's we don't necessarily have to use water in our operations. What we're interested in is the end result, not the use of water. And so let's design operations and plants and everything we can to not use water. And I, I think, you know, there is potential for a lot of conservation of water. I mean, you can look at the municipal experience in the West where you have like the city of Seattle, which uses less water now than it used in the 70s, even though it's grown by more than you know, over half a million people. If people commit to a conservation goal and stick to it and, and account for things correctly, that we can achieve a great deal of conservation. And these centers don't necessarily need to use cooling water to cool the servers. There are other ways to do it. And, and some of those examples are in Oregon. So I think, you know, if we follow the soft path and we, we try and use less water and look at the demand side of the equation rather than always looking at the supply side of the equation, I think we can, we can stretch what we have quite a distance. That sounds great. Well, thank you for your time today, John. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. That was John DeVoe of Waterwatch. Meg will now continue the conversation with our second guest, journalist Mike Rogoway. So I'm here with Mike Rogoway, who is a business writer at The Oregonian. Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well, thanks. Can you give us a bit of an overview on the work you've done on water and tech in Oregon? Yeah, well, start by talking a little bit about Oregon and a little bit about technology. We think of Oregon as a place where it rains quite a bit, but it, that really depends on where you are. On my side of the uh, Cascade Mountains here in Portland, we do get a lot of rain. But on the other side of the state, it's bone dry. We have high deserts. We have, you know, large large field, uh, large agrarian areas, agricultural areas that, that maybe don't get uh, as much water as all the, all the demands put on the areas might like, and that's everything from farming to fishing to technology. And Oregon, you know, we, th we think te of technology too as software and, and things like that. Oregon's specialty is computer hardware. This is where Intel's largest operations are, their most advanced factories are here in Oregon. And it's a big destination for data centers. Google built its first 
large data centers here, so did Facebook. Apple and Amazon have huge installations here, as does LinkedIn, Twitter, Adobe. So all these things use a great deal of water uh, in their in the either the manufacturing process for Intel and the other chip makers, or in cooling the data centers when it when it comes to the the data center operators. That makes sense. Do you know how Oregon became such a hotspot for data centers? Yeah, I, there's a, a few things to to think about with that. Data centers, uh, you know, they want cheap and dependable power. The, the servers have to be on all the time, and they have to be cooled to keep them cool. And and so you also need water. And you know, we we have had that historically, although it's harder to get in some places than others, as we mentioned. You also need fiber optics so that it can be connected to the internet and through various legacy projects there was fiber available even you know back around the turn of the century in fairly remote areas the beginning of the the 21st century i mean and you also need to be near population and technology hubs because even electrons take time to go from place to place and you want your data centers to be responsive so you know being not too far from the bay area not too far from seattle and in a place where water and things like that are are and, and power are, are available, we were a good destination. But there was another consideration, and it was just as important or perhaps more important than any of the others. Back in the 1980s, Oregon, like a lot of other states, created what they called an enterprise zone program, a set of property tax incentives for uh, the idea was small manufacturers, and you put them in distressed communities, uh, rural, small towns, and try to attract manufacturers and uh, by giving them, them uh, a temporary exemption on their property taxes. But lawmakers didn't put any cap on the size of those tax breaks. So when the data centers industry emerged two decades later, they looked up at Oregon and said, wait a minute, <laughs> we can get enormous tax breaks. So Amazon's tax breaks are worth billions of dollars. And they, they also, our tax breaks aren't awarded statewide. Each community chooses how much, uh, how much property tax to exempt. And these computers are huge and expensive, or the data centers are, are huge and the computers are expensive, and they're, st they're packed with thousands of servers. So there is uh, a big incentive to get as big an exemption as possible because Oregon, like most other states, taxes the property inside data centers as well as the land in the buildings. So those property tax exemptions, as I say, they save tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year or over the life of the exemption, billions of dollars. Uh, for these really large projects. We also have no sales tax in Oregon, which is another built-in incentive because those servers, you know, as I say, filling a, a data center costs hundreds of millions or, or billions of dollars uh, for a, a campus of data centers. And if you're not paying sales tax on those servers, you're saving a lot of money. Interesting. I, I knew that Oregon didn't have sales tax, but I guess I didn't consider the tax breaks that that leads to if you're buying all of your servers in Oregon. Yeah, it's a, it's a big consideration. And it's part of the reason Oregon has been a, a manufacturing-centric state at a time when other parts of the country have, have moved away from manufacturing or have lost their manufacturing base. Oregon's held onto it in part because it's a cheap place to buy and install equipment. That's a big incentive. Okay, so switching gears... How much water does a data center use? 
Well, it varies. Uh, you know, some don't use very, it depends on the cooling system that they've chosen. You know, they can use something more traditional like the air conditioning system you might have in your home, uh, which is very electric, electricity intensive, but doesn't use a lot of water. But for instance, Google out in the community called the Dalles, maybe 60 miles from here in Portland up the Columbia River, uh, in 2021, they used 355 million gallons of water. And just to give you a sense of scale, that's 29% of all the water used by everyone in the city. And it's three times more than Google had used five years earlier. Now that was 2021 numbers. The 2022 numbers didn't change very much, but Google is building two more large data centers in the Dalles. Uh, they have three now. So uh, the water use could increase considerably in the years ahead. Yeah, I could see that happening for sure. So this is a leading question, but how do we have Google's water usage data available to look at? Well, so if we go back to 2021, uh, we got, you know, our readers out in the Dallas said, oh, Google is seeking a lot more water from the city uh, and they want a new water deal to help finance that. And I thought, well, we should understand that. So I called the, the, the water utility manager for the city, a fellow named Dave Anderson, and, and asked him about the, the deal that Google was seeking, and he walked me through it, and that was great. But in a, a poor example of reporting, I forgot to ask him how much water Google was using at the time. And as soon as I hung up, I'm like, oh, I forgot to ask the most basic question. So I hopped on the email and sent Dave a, a note and said, oh, I forgot to ask, so stupid. Um, how much water is Google using now? Well, it, that email set off a chain of events then uh, that Google asserted that its water use was a trade secret and instructed the city not to tell us. Oregon has a, a sort of unusual public records process that the city said, oh, it's a trade secret, we can't tell you. So we appealed to the county district attorney and said, that they have no case here. They have to give us this information. They're a public utility, and you know this is this is public information. And the district attorney agreed, and ordered the city to hand over data about Google's water use. Well, Google then instructed the city to sue us to prevent us from getting access to that data, which is what Oregon public records law requires if you want if a city wants to block the records. And so Google said it was contractually bound to do what Google ordered, and did in fact sue us. Well, we fought the suit, and a, a nonprofit organization called Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press stepped in and provided legal representation for us, limit our, our legal exposure. Uh, we felt strongly from the beginning, as did the RCFP, that the law was on our side. And it took about a year, but Google gave up, and they agreed to give us everything we wanted, as well as uh, pay for the city's legal costs and our legal costs. And at the same time they disclosed Google's water use in the Dalles, they broke, they reversed a longstanding policy of keeping all their data center water use secret wherever they could and began disclosing it everywhere. Okay, can you break it down for me? Um, why is water use a trade secret? Yeah, it's a, a little opaque. Google's argument, and, it, and it, it's really hard to know what Google was arguing here because, as I said, I, I, we felt like their legal case wasn't very strong and it wasn't really clear why they had instructed the city to sue us. But in their legal documents, what they argued was that the water use, if, if you knew how much water they, they were using, that you would be able to reverse engineer something about their data center design in the Dalles. 
and competitors then maybe could somehow copy the operations of their data centers and, and gain a competitive advantage against Google. Google had, in a few prior occasions, disclosed water use in data center water use in other locations in the country when faced with similar legal challenges. So it, it wasn't really clear what about the data centers in Oregon were secret, or even if they'd really thought it through. Uh, it's you know this information is is generally public record. I'd never had any trouble getting it before. Uh, a few years ago, Intel built a huge water recycling plant, cost hundreds of millions of dollars in the city of Hillsboro, just west of Portland. We asked for Intel's water use. Nobody complained when I asked for Facebook's water use in a town called Prineville, which is south of the Dalles where Google operates. Nobody batted an eye. They just handed it over. So it's not really clear, you know, why Google thought that circumstances were different. But as I say, after a year, they gave up and provided us what we asked for. So apart from competitors being potentially able to reverse engineer their cooling technology, are there other downsides associated with releasing water consumption data? I, I wouldn't think so, except it is bringing awareness to the fact that data center water use is an issue. As I say, it, it depends on where you are, but data centers are often located in places where, you know, there are might be cheap power but or good tax breaks, but maybe not a lot of people. You don't need a lot of employees to run a data center. Uh, they're mostly empty. Uh, there's security personnel and a few technicians, but mostly they, they run themselves. And so there might be growing awareness to their natural resources impact around water. Although, of course, resisting it brought far more attention than just handing over the water use would have because there was a lot of publicity around Google's failed legal fight against us as well as ultimately when they gave up and handed over their water data, the amount of water they used. So if they were trying to keep that water use secret you know, to prevent themselves from getting a black eye, it certainly backfired. But I don't know that that's what, that's what they were trying to do. It's, it's mysterious to me. It was never, never really clear. Uh, if we take them at face value, they thought it was a trade secret. Perhaps they've changed their mind, and they, or perhaps they've just acknowledged that that's going to be inevitable, that people are going to be able to find this information out. Okay, yeah. So to switch gears a little, um, I know you've done some reporting on tax breaks and job creation and other potential benefits to the city. Uh, the cities that these data centers are built in. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, well, there are real benefits from the data centers, real economic benefits. There's, there's no doubt. I think, I think the, the policy question is whether the size of the tax breaks are commensurate with the benefits or whether the data centers might operate there anyway for other reasons like, you know, no sales tax or favorable uh, power mix or power availability with or without the tax breaks. But the, the benefits are, are real, but they vary by community. Uh, for instance, in Hillsboro, west of Portland, it's a, it's a large suburb. Uh, there is a cluster of data centers that consume a lot of the city's industrial land. And Twitter, for example, gets tax breaks worth five to $6 million a year there, but they have just 18 employees. And so they don't contribute much to the, the city's employment base, and they take a lot of industrial land and they get a big tax break. But in a smaller community like the Dalles, which we've been talking about, uh, which has 16,000 residents, that's where Google is, or, or Morrill County out in Eastern Oregon, uh, that's where Amazon is. They have 13,000 people. 
you know, a, a few hundred employees or several hundred employees have a, a real economic impact. So there's a real incentive for these small communities to land these data centers. Even a few hundred jobs are very meaningful there. Uh, the problem is that all these communities are, are fighting for the, the same thing. And so the neighboring communities of Morrill County, where Boardman is, and, and Umatilla County right next door, Amazon quite conspicuously plays one off the other. And they say, well, you know, they've offered us this tax breaks in one community. If you don't give us the same thing, we're going there. And so they, it's kind of a, it creates a race to the bottom situation. And from a state policy perspective, it's a little peculiar to pit counties, your own counties, against one another to see who will give away the most money. Can you speak to those policy reasons at all of having counties set their own tax rates? I don't think people considered it. I, it's, it's a local control issue, and it's something the local counties feel very strongly about, that they should be able to choose for themselves what kind of industries are most attractive and most useful. So they should be able to set their own policy for you know, how big a, a tax incentive they should offer. I think nobody considered in the 80s what they were talking about were tax breaks in the tens of thousands of dollars, not in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And because nobody put an upper limit on it, nobody contemplated the data center industry back in the 80s. It, it was 20 years off, 25 years off at the time. And so nobody considered that a small town would have a, a situation like this. You know, again, that there are real benefits. You know, they don't excuse all the property taxes. Amazon, for example, in, in Morrill County, it's still the county's largest taxpayer, even though they're saving $60 million or something a year in property taxes. They're still paying something. And in some other communities, they pay the data centers pay a franchise fee on the electricity they use, and or they generate that franchise fee on the electricity they use. That becomes uh, an important part of the city's general fund. So there are real benefits from it. There's no doubt, real economic benefits. Again, the question is, could they get those benefits without giving away tax breaks that are quite this large? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm guessing they probably could at this point, especially now that the data centers are actually built there. But I'm assuming there's a contract holding them into their current tax rate. Yes. And, and the, the rural, these enterprise zone tax breaks, they go for 15 years. And I think it's an open question what will happen at the end of 15 years. Will these data centers roll on the regular tax rolls and start paying huge tax bills? Or might folks demand new tax breaks or shut down old data centers and just run more modern ones that are much cheaper to operate because they have a, a lower uh, tax burden. We, we have one example of that so far in Oregon, one major example, and that's Google's first data center, which they opened in 2006 in the Dalles. It came onto the tax rolls, oh, a year ago. Uh, and it is paying regular taxes out there, but it's an open, and so that's adding a few million dollars to the city's general fund. It's an open question, though, what happens when these two new data centers open, which have property tax exemptions for 15 more years? Will Google keep paying full freight on this 15 or 20-year-old data center, or will they shift the work to the new tax-exempt data centers? We'll just have to watch and see. And then sell the land? Well, uh, they could leave it idle. Uh, or uh, an empty, or perhaps they could put fully depreciated uh, servers in there that don't have a tax burden, uh, or perhaps they could sell the land or, or demand a new tax break. I think there's all kinds of things that are, are possible. Or they may, they may just become huge taxpayers, and, and you may end up with these small communities with huge property tax bases. It could happen. We're many years off from getting a full answer from that question 
uh, you know, some of these tax breaks are brand new. So it will be the 2030s or 2040s before we really know. So I saw that some tech companies are investing in the infrastructure of the cities they are choosing to build in. And particularly, I saw that Google is helping to upgrade the water infrastructure in the Dalles. That seems like it could be a great opportunity for a small town. That was part of the water deal that they signed, that in exchange for more water, they would pay for an upgrade in the city's water infrastructure to make more water available, you know, water rights that weren't being used at the time or couldn't be used uh, because it would have taken more investment. Uh, pumping groundwater down into the city's aquifer and in the wet winter months and then pulling it out in the very dry summer months. And that's going ahead. That deal was signed and, and that's happening. So it, it should make more water available but it's not like they're pulling the water out of thin air. It's coming from other places. And, and that's the concern of, of environmentalists and, and farmers and others out there, that it will draw down the water that's available in the region for other purposes, whether it be fish or farming or other industry. That makes so much sense. Can you give the argument for restricting the number of data centers that can or should be built and... Can you speak to if that should be regulated by an entity or if it should be left to market forces or possibly natural forces? Well, I think it's good to think about what data centers do for us and, and how we use them. So right now, people listening to this podcast are streaming it from a data center. <laughs> That's it's whether it's whether it's podcasts or Netflix or YouTube or Gmail, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You know, this is where all these things live in these data centers. If you, if you haven't been in one, the metaphor I always use is, is, you know, take the biggest Costco you've ever been in, double it in size, turn off all the lights and get all the people out of there. Then just fill it with computers. And that's what's in there. And we all use them. And I, the examples I gave are all consumers, but business relies on it increasingly too. And it, it's an efficient way for computing to operate because they take advantage of the economies of scale. Having powerful computers centralized and optimizing their performance, their resources, that means the computers on our desktop don't have to do all that. So there are real benefits to the data centers. I, I think the question before limiting them that I'd like to have is an open conversation about incentives. And I'd like to see policymakers and the, the public weigh in on whether or not the world's richest tech companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, Twitter, if they really need these incentives or if they would be operating the data centers anyway. And I think there's a very strong reason to believe they would be operating anyway. Right. Oregon just extended its enterprise zone program this last legislative session and scores of small town City managers came out and testified to its importance, the importance of the Enterprise Zone program. But almost none of them mentioned, in fact, none of them mentioned, not one, uh, that the primary way that these tax breaks are used are not for small manufacturers or small businesses or to lure employers. They're used almost, you know, three quarters, I think, of the tax breaks go to the data centers, to these rich companies. And I think I'd like to see that incorporated in that discussion. And then policymakers, it's up to them and the public, whether or not that's how we want to use it or not. Uh, so that's, that's what I'd like to see, is just an open and candid discussion about how we're using our incentives and how we're using our natural resources. And if we decide the data centers are the optimal way to use them, fine. But let's just make sure that we're having that open discussion. Sure, yeah. So what are some other ways that corporations can 
make moves to be more environmentally conscious beyond being open to that discussion? I think one thing that's distinctive about all the companies I just mentioned, you know, the big tech companies, Apple, Facebook, which is now Meta, uh, Google, which I guess is now Alphabet, Amazon, not one of them disputes the science behind climate change. They all embrace it and they all stress the importance of clean power. And they all want to move that way. And many of them say they already have that, okay, they might be using, you know, carbon uh, fossil fuels, carbon emitting fossil fuels for some locations, but they're building clean energy elsewhere to compensate for that. And that may be the case. When I talk to power planners in the Northwest, what I hear is that, yes, it's they create a big new power load in our region and potentially use more fossil fuels. That's the glass half empty. The glass half full, they say, is there's a powerful constituency that want now in the region that wants clean power. They may not have it now, but they want it eventually. And so they can provide the resources, the money, to uh, build more clean power generation. And a generator might, you know, a, a company might not build a solar farm or a wind farm for just one customer. It may, they may build it large enough to serve, okay, Amazon's their anchor tenant, but maybe many others will benefit from it as well. One of the main issues we have in our region is, is transmission. We lack transmission of the places where we generate clean power to the places where we want to use it uh, in the Northwest. And they could create an incentive to build that transmission. And so the glass half full way of looking at it is the data centers could be a big catalyst for clean energy infrastructure in the Northwest. None of them are out there saying, oh, climate change is a joke or it's a hoax or anything like that. They all say they believe it and they're committed to addressing it. It could be that commitment could pay dividends. Right. I mean, these companies do sort of seem like the players that have the power and the resources and the interest to be the catalyst that really pushes us toward a more environmentally friendly sector. It's certainly a lot different than if you had large companies coming into the region and saying that, you know, they weren't concerned about climate change. Having large companies come into the region and say they are concerned about it makes a difference. Now, it gets complicated because this past year, Oregon's legislature had a, a bill before it that would have required data center operators to meet the same clean energy goals that other Oregon companies have to meet. And Amazon lobbied heavily, spent a lot of money, and successfully killed that bill. So they were sort of working against it. I think what Amazon would say is the flaw was, and I think what they did say is the flaw in Oregon's bill was it mandated clean energy without creating a path to get there. Mm. And I think they would be more receptive to a bill, uh, or at least they say they would be more receptive to a bill that provided a mechanism to support the clean energy generation and the transmission that they say their data centers need. Right. Now, of course, they've built their data centers in a region that offers big tax breaks, but not e- easy energy, to, easy access to clean energy. They could have put their data center somewhere else where there was a better access to clean energy. They didn't. But now that they're here, perhaps they could work with the state on bridging that divide and getting clean energy to their facilities. Well... I really appreciate your time today, Mike. Yeah. Well, thanks for your interest. This episode was brought to you by Ashwarya Atewal, Zach McPherson, Meg O'Neill, and Sarah Farooq.
You have been listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. This was brought to you by podcast editors Eric Ahern, Meg O'Neill, and Juliet Draper. Our executive producer is BTLJ Senior Online Content Editor, Linda Chang. BTLJ's Editors-in-Chief are Will Casper and Yuhan Wu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Write us at btljpodcast at gmail.com with questions or suggestions of who we should interview next. These interviews were recorded on November 17, 2023. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic entertainment purposes only.